following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, if you've been with us for some time, um, you will then hopefully recall that we are currently in the middle of the second half of a, a grand total of an eight-part series working through the book of Genesis thematically. So I began this series with four sermons in the spring, and we're doing four now for a total of eight. Um, I'm going to describe just very briefly uh, what it means to be preaching thematically and maybe why that's significant. It's not normally the way that we preach here. Typically, we would just work through a book of the Bible, you know, verse by verse or kind of like chunk by chunk, depending on exactly which book of the Bible it is. There's different good ways to break it up, but we normally just take them in order and we see what the Word of God has to say. But there are other valuable ways to read the Bible, and one of those is um, thematically, I've called it. Uh, you may also hear this term referred to as biblical theology. And the point of biblical theology is to understand what the, the whole Bible is trying to communicate as one complete literary unit. In other words, God is the author of all of Scripture, and when an author writes a work, he has something to say. And so everything in the Bible ought to come together and fit in with the broader whole story of the Bible. And so we are looking at the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, some of the earliest stories, because naturally, if God is going to use themes over and over again in the Bible, he would introduce them in Genesis. And so instead of going kind of story by story through Genesis or trying to cover all of the major pieces, I am simply taking a section of Genesis and drawing from that section a particular theme, and then we evaluate uh, what we can learn about that theme and where it occurs in the rest of Scripture. So I'll skip over a lot of stuff, and I might miss you know, parts of Genesis that are otherwise important, and it's not because they're not important, it's not because I'm ignoring them on purpose, but rather I'm doing that because we are only trying to focus on one particular theme for each Sunday. So I'll recap where we have come from, and then I will tell you where we are going. So first, we looked at creation at the very beginning of Genesis, and we learned that God's design for creation is to fill the earth with a place where his people can live with him and enjoy him forever, specifically a garden. God's garden was the theme of creation. We then found, once Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, sinned uh, and then were cast out of the garden, we learned that all of mankind is either of the seed of the woman, which is God's people, or of the seed of the serpent, which is God's enemies. And importantly, we found that God chooses his people, that is, he chooses who will be in the line of the seed of the woman, not based on their birth order or their power or impressiveness or their cultural cachet or their good works or anything else, but rather, God specifically often likes to choose the weak to be his people because ultimately it isn't us who will defeat the serpent, but Jesus. With the flood, we saw God introduce the theme of judgment, and specifically of salvation through judgment. Judgment wipes away evil, which cleanses to make way for rebirth and new creation. And as God cleansed the earth through judgment, so he cleanses us from our sins. At Babel, God showed us that the efforts of man to usurp him amount to less than nothing, but that God's mission to spread his glory, his garden to the ends of the earth, will not be thwarted by any efforts of us. And then last week, we began to 
uh, encounter kind of the story of what we're calling the patriarchs. So that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These are the men that the people of Israel considered to be their earliest fathers. And so first, beginning with Abraham, God reveals to us the mechanism by which he deals with his people. That is a covenant, which is a sworn promise. God offers a first covenant with all of mankind through Adam. He says, if you will be my people, then I will be your God. But he knew that we would break this covenant, and so he also offers another new covenant to all who are in Jesus, in which he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Not because of our good works, but because Jesus obeys that first covenant in our place. And so we'll move on now past Abraham. And this would be, if you're familiar with your Bible, a sensible time to talk about Isaac, who is Abraham's son. Isaac inherits the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And for the rest of the Bible, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for now, I'm going to sidestep Isaac just for this week. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about him and mostly about Jacob and Esau on the topic of birthright and inheritance. And then the week after that, we will close out our Genesis series with Joseph one more time. But this week, I'm going to use Isaac's place in the order to instead talk about his wife, Rebecca, and then their daughter-in-law, Rachel. And I am going to use these two women to dive into the role of women in all of redemptive history. So you see, while God saves men and women just the same, we're both sinners in need of a Savior, God has also created men and women differently and has designed them with a different purpose. And so it is fitting, it is expected, that God has a particular, a special role for women in his plan of salvation for all mankind. And so as I have been with every sermon thus far, I'm going to just rush through a summary of their lives, calling out some points to remember I will then discuss what we can learn about our main theme just from this story in Genesis, and then we will branch out to the rest of the Bible to see where else this theme occurs, and we will conclude by evaluating what our theme teaches us about ourselves and about the church and how we are to conduct ourselves today. So we pick up after Abraham, uh, we pick up during Abraham's life. So we've already partially discussed Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, uh, as we discussed Abraham. But I will just sum her up by saying that God promised Abraham a son as part of his covenant. And that son would lead to a a great lineage and many nations. Um, But Sarah thought herself too old, being 90-some, and she laughed in God's face upon hearing this news. She then tried to sinfully find a man-made substitute for God's promise, and that plan failed spectacularly. I don't want to give any sense that it was just Sarah's idea. This was Sarah and Abraham both. Uh, But as far as Sarah is concerned, then you should not be surprised to find that God had the last laugh. He did give Sarah a son in her advanced age, and that son's name was to be Isaac, which means laughter. So Isaac, Abraham's son, is now a grown man, and Sarah has passed away in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham calls his chief servant to him and sends him away on a vital mission to find a wife for Isaac. Because after all, Isaac is the covenant, the chosen son of Abraham, and Isaac then therefore needs to have children of his own. To make a long story short, the servant finds just the right young woman, and her name is Rebecca. She uh, She catches his eye and is chosen out due to her trust in the Lord. 
She and her family, uh, although we find later, probably are not necessarily um, in the covenant or not necessarily what we would call believers. Uh, they certainly appear to have some sort of respect for the God of Abraham because when it is revealed how God had orchestrated this meeting between Rebekah and Abraham's servant, uh, all of the family agrees that certainly it's the right thing to do for her to go and be Isaac's wife. The only part from this story that I'll read is just chapter 24, verse 60, which is the blessing that Rebecca's family grants to her before she departs. So her family says, as she's leaving, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And so hopefully, if you can remember that far back, you'll recall God's promise to Eve after she and Adam sinned for the first time. God promised Eve that uh, he will surely multiply her pain and childbearing, and in pain, she shall bring forth children. But although childbearing will be painful, it is also through Eve's children that God promises he will ultimately save mankind from that same sin that brought the curse. We see that where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this blessing given to Rebekah ought to recall that same language in our minds from Genesis 3 when we encounter it. And especially I want you to note that in both cases, both with the, the curse delivered to the servant and also the blessing delivered to Rebecca, that the word offspring is actually referred to with a singular male pronoun. So we are expecting, eventually, and they are expecting, Eve and Rebecca and all the people of God are expecting one chosen offspring to save them. So now back to Genesis 25. Abraham dies in due time, as we all do, and as the author of Genesis often does, he marks the end of one sort of major narrative section and the beginning of the next by saying, these are the generations of. And as we learned before, he begins by saying, these are the generations of the unchosen side of the family, in this case, Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother, who was not an inheritor of the covenant, and then proceeds to recount the lineage of the chosen seed, the line of the woman, and that is Isaac. So that little, these are the generations of, is called a Toledot. And the next Toledot, after this one, doesn't occur until the end of Isaac and the end of Jacob's uh, major involvement goes by, and we will begin Joseph's life. So within this narrative section, we are going to deal with, like I said, first Rebecca and Rachel, and then we'll go back and talk about Isaac and Jacob. So Rebecca. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, she is initially barren, childless, for something like 20 years. It's not clear exactly, but some math involved tells us it's something like 20 years. That's a long time. And this struggle is going to be a common and ongoing theme in Genesis and the rest of the Bible. We've already seen that with Sarah, that infertility is also a part of the curse that God delivered to Eve. That term childbearing that God uses when he tells Eve there will be pain in childbearing uh, is rarely used in scripture, so it's hard to say exactly what it means in English, but it refers to all parts of the, the process of a child being conceived and gestated and born and even raised. Childbearing is an all encompassing term to refer to just the whole lifespan of bringing a child forth into the world. And so Rebecca, like Sarah, has difficulty bearing a child, and we'll see soon that Rachel does as well. And so as the generative power of women is such an essential part of God's design for them, it is then reasonable and expected that the pain of that process, or even the failure of that process, is likewise an integral part of that curse that sin has brought onto all of womankind. And so we come here to Genesis 
chapter 25. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we're going to talk about this a lot more next week when we discuss birthright and Jacob and Esau. But for now, please just understand that when Rebecca heard this, and surely she would have told Isaac, and when the original readers of Genesis, or hearers more likely of Genesis, would have encountered this, they would certainly be thinking, the older will serve the younger? That can't be right. And it wasn't simply a matter of a non-traditional way of doing things. They would have probably thought even so strongly as, that's unnatural. Maybe even that's wrong, that the older would serve the younger. The birth order was of vital importance in this day. But God upholds his promise, answering Isaac's faithful prayer. Uh, and he answers as he likes to do in a somewhat unexpected way. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we have Esau and Jacob. God has already said to Rebekah that the younger Jacob will rule, but we see trouble brewing already. And even beyond just the two boys and their conflict, even Isaac and Rebekah have a little tension. They've sort of taken sides. I don't want you to hear that it says Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob and think that that means that each parent only loved one of their children. The, this construction, this kind of phrasing, and these words in Hebrew are often just used to contrast favor or preference. So Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. And that could mean just kind of simple favoritism, but it could also mean that Isaac was sort of backing Esau as the main guy, and Rebekah was kind of taking Jacob's side. And so let's also note the contrast that's shown to us between the demeanor of these two young men. Esau is a big, hairy, manly man, and he hunts and he lives outside. Jacob is a quiet, clever, later we'll see deceptive fellow, who mostly hangs out in the tents. And the way that Jacob is described, you may not catch it in English or culturally, but Jacob is described in a way that makes him come off maybe even as a little effeminate. He's neither in the wild, hunting, nor in the fields with the flocks, which are things that men would normally and should normally be doing. Instead, he, makes his, he spends his days in the tents, and tents are where women and children and the elderly live. So God said Jacob would rule, but Jacob doesn't seem to be acting like anyone would expect or want a ruler to act. There is no doubt that Esau was the more impressive specimen of a man, and Isaac, the father, the patriarch of this household, also favored him. But Rebekah, whether merely selfishly or faithfully trusting in God, we don't really know, she follows God's prophecy that Jacob will rule. So we're going to jump ahead to the end of chapter 26 and starting into chapter 27. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 
So Esau has here done the opposite of what Abraham insisted would be done for Isaac. Esau marries into the people that were living in that land that God had promised to Abraham. And this seems to have caused some family drama. But nonetheless, Isaac persists in granting his blessing and inheritance to Esau. So we come to the next few verses. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, to him and said, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. So then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for me, and prepare for me your delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat and then my soul may bless you before I die. And again, it isn't 100% clear whether or not Isaac and Rebekah's favor was, was granted uh, trying to make like a spiritual statement or just simply on the grounds of favoritism, but Isaac here is certainly going out of line. God was explicit that Jacob was to be the chosen seed who would carry on the covenant, but Isaac is here attempting to willfully pass the family torch to Esau instead. And so now Rebekah starts to take a more prominent role. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So she sees what's about to happen and intervenes. She tells Jacob to go to Isaac and receive the blessing first. Jacob says, my skin is smooth and Esau is hairy. Even my blind father will still be able to tell. So Rebekah covers him in goat skins and sends him in. Jacob outright lies to Isaac about his identity, but Isaac doesn't realize and he blesses Jacob, not understanding what had happened until Esau comes back later. Unsurprisingly, Esau desires to kill Jacob, but Rebekah again catches wind and sends Jacob away. And so we'll catch back up with Jacob and Esau together next week, but for now we're going to leave Esau to the side and follow Jacob uh, because we are interested in Jacob's wife, or in this case, wives. So you see, Jacob went back to Rebekah's family, and reasonably for a man of his age, he hopes to find a wife there. He notices a young woman, Rachel, and agrees to work seven years to earn the right to marry her. But he gets a taste of his own deceptive medicine when he is tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. So Jacob works another seven years and is then allowed to also marry Rachel. I'm not going to get into the question of whether or not God does or did condone polygamy in the Old Testament. The short answer is no, he did not. It is sinful when it is committed, but these are real stories about real people, and these things did happen. It doesn't mean that they're right. But fortunately for us, sinning does not disqualify someone for receiving salvation. So Jacob has now married Leah and Rachel, and we are back to the theme of childbearing, or again, the lack thereof. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Jacob is openly showing favoritism to Rachel, and yet she remains childless. Leah bears four sons and is proud, hoping that they will win the favor of her husband, and Rachel, unsurprisingly, can't stand that. So we'd retread some bad paths that we've already gone down with Abraham and Sarah. Rachel offers up her servant to Jacob to bear sons, and she delivers two Leah is jealous again, and so offers her servant, who delivers another two sons. And then in time, two more come to Leah naturally. And so we're at the point now in Scripture where Leah and Rachel are actually openly exchanging household favors for nights in bed with Jacob. So this is not a happy home. But we have a total of ten sons, none belonging to Rachel. And then finally, at long last, God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. 
She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. In spite of all Jacob and Rachel's family problems, the consequences of their sins, no doubt, Rachel still faithfully prays to God for a child and rightly gives praise to him, recognizing that every good gift is from him alone. A lot more happens, some of which we're going to look at next week, but much of which we won't before Rachel bears one more son, Benjamin. Sadly, though, she dies in childbirth, and so thus we reach the end of Rebecca and Rachel. As usual, we will now look back on our chosen texts and determine what we can learn about our chosen theme just from what we've encountered in the book of Genesis. Then we will open up our exploration to all of Scripture to fill out more knowledge about this theme. And as you hopefully see by now, God introduces many themes in Genesis that he revisits later, and the role of women in his redemptive plan is no exception. So let me point out, as always, that these examples that we have seen here in Genesis and the ones that we will see in the rest of the Bible are not automatically prescriptive. Just because someone that God has chosen does something does not mean that that thing that they have done is the right thing to do. God chooses us in spite of our sins, not because of our lack of sins. Noah and Abraham and everybody that we've encountered so far are clearly sinners, and the women in Genesis are no exception. Women are not more holy than men. Lying Rebecca and jealous Rachel cause all manner of problems for themselves and their families. But nonetheless, I am going to strive to observe some common patterns, uh, bearing in mind that that does not mean the Bible commands those same patterns. And we will work towards an application for us nearer to the end. So first, it is impossible to miss that women are frequently active in the Bible through the bearing of children. Way back at creation in Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And now men are comparatively probably better at the subduing part of that command. They're bigger physically and usually stronger, and that's good for digging and cutting and building, and men seem to have the urge to do those kinds of things. But men are not really much use in terms of the filling and multiplying part of that command. You see, women are created to be generative, and the women in Genesis are no exception. Eve is promised that her line will bear a savior, Sarah is promised a chosen son, and Rebecca and Rachel likewise. And I want to make an aside to say that, you know, an attack that could be leveled against me or the Bible or God is that I might be reducing all women to the purpose of bearing children, but I want to say that I'm, in fact, elevating women to the purpose of bearing children because they're the only ones that can. Much like all of us might admire, say, an Olympian athlete because they can run faster and jump higher than I ever could, I also greatly admire and appreciate the office of mother as something that I could never do and yet is of amazing value and importance. And God clearly values this role immensely as well. And so a discussion of childbearing then naturally leads to the next notable quality of these women in Genesis— God often uses women to reinforce his many promises that the lowly or downcast or needy or unexpected will be his chosen. So I recognize today, like we see in Genesis, that many women are unable to bear children for all manner of reasons. And it's clear from Scripture that God sees you and gives dignity to your situation. We see these women, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. They would have known of God's promise to Abraham. They would be thinking, well, if God has promised many generations and vast descendants and nations to Abraham. Here I am in this line, and yet I'm childless. So God must not have chosen me to be a part of this. I mean, that's why they're so inclined, so quick to offer up substitutes. They must be thinking, it can't be me. But God, 
has chosen each of them, not by their natural fertility, but because of their faith and his faithfulness. And yes, God did choose to grant each of them children in time after fervent prayer, but in principle, even if the children never come, God is making it clear to us that his chosen instruments are never chosen upon the grounds of what they bring to the table. Rebecca is not counted in the line of salvation because of her natural ability to have children, but only because of God's generosity to her to give them to her. And so whether the curse of sin on you in particular, sisters, is in the pain of childbearing or the pain of lack, you are nonetheless free to go to God and ask him for every good gift as these women did. It may not be what you expect or desire, but it will be what God needs for you. So we also see the women in Genesis, in spite of and in many ways because of their lack of power in the normal sense, are able to operate in different ways. So we'll recall that Abraham has a household of something like one to 2,000 people. So he's a bit of a ruler. And Isaac and Jacob would have inherited similar and probably even grown those numbers. Uh, Throughout Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are often considered to be peers to other kings in the area. So these men were leaders. They were probably impressive in some way, maybe strong and intimidating or very wise, or perhaps just because they had the right pedigree, they had inherent respect of the people that served them. But these women had to operate under a different set of rules of power. They weren't in positions to just make decisions and order people around. If they wanted to get something done, they typically had to work around the edges. They had to use things like influence and convince behind the scenes. And they often even step into the realm of subterfuge and deception. Again, we're not endorsing this behavior necessarily, but merely observing that women in the Bible use indirect power, typically out of necessity, but they also seem to be good at it by design, you might even say. And so kind of as a summary of all these, this is what I really want to get at. These women in Genesis were not any of the people who a normal, average observer would look at and say, this is who will save me. God promises seed and blessing and land. Sarah is an old lady. Rebecca is barren for 20 years. And then she backs the younger, undeserving son. Rachel is always playing second fiddle to Leah. None of them command anyone. None of them have any land. None of them feel particularly blessed. None of them are in the running for the first pick for anyone's team of powerful leaders. And yet, they are each exactly who God chooses to fulfill his mission. So let's continue on and look for more similarities in these themes in the rest of the Bible. First, we can go backwards to Eve. Eve is naturally the prime representative of women as mothers. Her name means life because she is the mother of all living. She was promised offspring who would bring about salvation from sin. We carry on then to Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, who we've discussed. And we proceed forward then to Exodus. The people of Israel, so these are Abraham's descendants, his many descendants now, as God promised him, are enslaved in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is concerned about their population levels. And so he decrees that the midwives are to kill all Hebrew baby boys as soon as they're born. In Exodus 1, we see that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? But the midwives said to Pharaoh, 
The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth too fast before the midwife can come to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. His midwives were faithful. They lied to Pharaoh to protect these baby boys. And God dealt well with them. So Pharaoh changes his strategy and he says, okay, fine. Instead of putting it in the hands of the Hebrew midwives, all Egyptians are now responsible to throw Hebrew baby boys into the river. And so Miriam, who is Moses' older sister, hides Moses after he's born and diligently watches over him. Pharaoh's own daughter finds baby Moses in a basket in the river and wants to adopt him. And Miriam, not deceptively per se, but definitely with some cleverness and subtlety, manages to arrange to have Moses' own mother to be chosen as his caretaker. So this little girl from the slave class with no power and influence whatsoever was vital through her cleverness to God's plan for salvation. Forward to the book of Judges, a man named Barak was told by God to lead the people of Israel in battle against her enemies. But Barak was afraid. He would not go into battle without a woman named Deborah by his side. Deborah warns him that this will mean that a woman will gain the honor from killing the enemy commander. And as she prophesied after the battle, that same enemy commander flees the field of battle and he hides in the house of another woman named Jael. She offers him hospitality, but is secretly loyal to Israel, killing him with a tent stake to the head. Yet another seeming nobody that God brings right to the front lines just in time. Samuel, the author of First and Second Samuel and Kings and maybe Chronicles, was a priest and prophet to God's people. His mother, Hannah, was also childless and a favored second wife, much like Rachel. She prayed so unceasingly that the local priest thought she was a drunk, muttering to herself. And yet it was not drunkenness, but faith that compelled her constant prayers. In time, God answered her, and she bore a son. After which she prayed, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So God reinforces this pattern in which he brings about his work through the lowly and unexpected. Hannah clearly sees herself in this line of the poor and feeble and needy, and yet she also sees that she is in the line of those who are blessed and raised up by God. Her fervent prayer and trust in God delivers her. Just before the book of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we're given a genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And so we see, as we would expect, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob kicking off a long line of men and their sons. But four women are also mentioned in this genealogy. So what did they do to get on this list? The first woman listed is Tamar. Poor Tamar was widowed twice and then abandoned by her extended family with no children for many. So she posed as a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into impregnating her, both a horrible sin and the victim of a horrible sin. But nonetheless, these patterns, these themes persist. Tamar was powerless and unnoticed, using deception to achieve her goals, completely unexpected and yet central to God's plan. After all, one of the children born from this sinful union was one of the ancestors of Jesus listed in this very genealogy. God did not want to make a clean version of that story. As always, he wanted to use the weak to shame the strong. 
This is God's story and not ours. Next is Rahab. When the Israelites were conquering Canaan as God commanded, the great city of Jericho posed a severe threat. Israelite spies entered the city and found Rahab, who was again a prostitute. This was a woman in perhaps the worst possible circumstances to find faith in God. She was in a wicked profession, in a wicked city, full of a wicked people. And yet, she must have heard somewhere just enough about this God of Israel to know to take his side. Again, through subterfuge and cleverness, she aids the spies, and God spares her alone when the city is destroyed. And she is also brought into God's chosen line of redemption. The third is Ruth. Ruth is the closest thing to a good person, probably in the entire genealogy of Jesus. But she was a poor widow who emigrated to Judah, the land of Judah, and her only means of survival was a, a, essentially a combination of begging and picking grain on the edges of landowners' property. She cared well for her mother-in-law and worked hard at the edges of Boaz's fields, trusting God to provide for her. It came to light that Boaz was actually something of a relative of Ruth's late husband, and so that actually meant that she potentially had some right to appeal to her, to, to Boaz, and, uh, and maybe compel him to marry her and take care of her. But she doesn't choose to assert her right or attempt to, but rather through the wisdom of her mother-in-law and because of her trust in God, she plays a longer game and instead wins over Boaz earnestly. God rewards her with a son who we will find is King David's grandfather and also a place in Jesus' family tree. The final woman listed in Jesus' lineage is Bathsheba. Bathsheba was bathing one day and caught the eye of King David. He summoned her to the palace, and it's not really something that you get to say no to. She was as powerless then as she was later when David arranged for her husband to be killed in battle, and again when the first child that she bore from David died soon after birth. And yet God gave her another son, Solomon. David swore that Solomon would inherit the throne, despite not being his firstborn, and yet Bathsheba still had to use her tact and charm to make sure that happened when the time came. Another example of a nobody in particular, with no real concrete power, and yet mighty in the hand of God. All of these women of Scripture, some exemplary, some less, share many of these common traits. Unassuming, unimpressive, needy, downtrodden, lacking, of no account in the eyes of the world, all in desperate need of someone to save them. They only have God in whom to trust, and it is their faithfulness in God which is to their credit every time. And there is one more very important thing about these four women in Jesus' line, and it isn't necessarily a point that is obvious from Rebecca and Rachel alone, but I can't get this far and pass it up. You see, all four of these women were not Israelites. These women were already nobodies in the eyes of the world, and in many cases worse than that, but even in the eyes of the people of God, they were not part of the bloodline that God was going to use to bring about salvation. And yet, God brings them in. They represent the bringing in of all peoples into that line, the chosen seed of the woman, God's chosen people. And so let me then present a question. As we carry forward, even to today, who else or what else in Scripture enters God's chosen people as an outsider? via the birth of a promised child and serves as a faithful remnant when the obvious chosen people of God are faithless. Brothers and sisters, we do. Yeah. 
the church is the bride of Christ. The church, that is us together, us corporately, his whole church worldwide, follows in the footsteps of these women of faith. We are chosen from meager estate, not the obvious candidates, nothing to marvel at, and yet the church is chosen out by God to be his faithful people. The proof is in Ephesians 5 and many other places. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So just as these women that we've encountered in Scripture were sinful and weak and not worthy to be chosen by God, so are each one of us. And yet... Jesus, through his death, his sacrifice for her, has made the church, made us, the members of his church, clean, that we might be presented to him as a beautiful bride, adorned to be married. So based on this theme of God's role for women in his redemptive history, what should we expect as a church? All of the commands given to the church in the New Testament make perfect sense when they are read through the lens of the bride of Christ. First, we should not expect worldly power. When Jesus was on trial, about to be sentenced to death in John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. That's not the job of the bride of Christ. We're not to fight. We're not to stand tall and proud and force back the evil forces of this world. No. We are the bride of Christ. He is the one. He is the leader. He is the king. Likewise, we should not expect to be impressive. In Acts 4, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. The people of the church, the church itself, is not meant to be the best and the brightest. It's not the elite class. It's not the Ivy League of of all the people. It's just the ones who have been with Jesus, the ones whom God has chosen. And so if this is what we are to expect as the church, what should we do as the church? We can draw from these patterns that we've seen how God uses women as part of his redemptive plan to learn what then the church might do to be faithful. First, we are to be fruitful. In John 15, you did not choose me. This is Jesus speaking to the church. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And at the end of his time on earth, Jesus says to his disciples, instructions to the whole church, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see that we are to be fruitful and we are to remain faithful. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Like these women of Scripture, our role is to be fruitful and to remain faithful, steadfast, waiting on the Lord, entrusting ourselves to Him. And lastly, we are to pray fervently. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. May we be known as the church, the bride of Christ, as a fruitful, faithful, fervently praying people. The church is not meant to be some mighty force on earth. We should not expect to be admired or esteemed or in control, for that is not our place in God's story. Our place is one of multiplying, remaining, and praying. All of these instructions to us that I have read are exemplified by our sisters in the Lord that we have read about in Scripture. None of them perfect, not even close, but all of them chosen, just like you and me. And you may feel like I skipped over someone when I went to talking about the church. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary knows exactly what God expects of her and her role in his story. And so, likewise, she teaches us how to act as the church. We encounter, before Jesus was born, little Mary, young, newly engaged, helpless and meaningless in the world, An angel comes to her and says, Mary, you are going to bear the Son of God who will save his people. And what does Mary say? She doesn't say, oh, good. I felt like I deserved this. She doesn't say, I'm ready. Put me out front. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has remembered his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, forever. So let us then, brothers and sisters, as the church, learn from these women of faith. Let us learn not to strive or demand or assert or seek power in the world and in the eyes of those around us, but rather let us be fruitful and faithful and pray fervently. Let us all have in our hearts what Mary did when the angel told her that she would be with child, saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the example of these women in Scripture. Not the example of how great they were, because they weren't, but the example of how you make them great, only through your hand only through your blessing, only through your faithfulness. Let us then trust you. As the church is the bride of Christ, let us believe that you will, like you did with Rebecca and Rachel and and Rahab and Mary and all of these, 
that you will care for us, you will provide for us. Let us be faithful and pray diligently and unceasingly for these things to come to pass. And Father, we eagerly await that day when we, the church, will be fully adorned as the bride of Christ, ready for the great wedding feast, which we will all partake of together. Lord, please hasten that day. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.